Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right, here with the day one leadership podcast. Today, my guest is the CEO of Anytime Fitness. And this started as a single gym in Minnesota in 2002. It now has over 3,000 locations in all 50 states. 20 other countries. It's serving over 2 million customers, generating almost a billion dollars in revenue. Forbes magazine has called this man's company one of America's 15 most promising companies. Entrepreneur magazine ranked it first on their global franchise list. And our guest today himself has been named one of Chief Executive Magazine's CEOs of the year. I'm here with the CEO of Anytime Fitness, Chuck Runyon. Chuck, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Drew, thank you. It is an honor and a pleasure to uh, to be involved in this, so thanks. Well, here's what I want to know right off the top. What is it that you've done that's made thousands of people, and not just the people who work for you, get your company logo tattooed on their body? <laughs> like, What is it that has inspired that kind of, of growth in your company and devotion to it? Because I, I read, is it 2,000 different people have had this purple running man actually tattooed on their body? Yeah. Yeah, people are blown away at that story, and it's actually probably now closer to 3,000 people in over a dozen countries. And what I love about this, these are, you know, there's an assortment of franchise owners. There's some, some of the people who work, whether they're employees for Anytime Fitness or whether they're club, uh, employees of the, uh, the clubs locally, or we've had hundreds of members do this. So these are consumers, people who buy memberships at like a, you know, a typical health club, and of course they find that Anytime Fitness is not just your typical center. But people always ask me, why do people do it? And I've heard, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stories why, because, you know, we not only do we provide tattoo artists, but anywhere in the world, if someone wants to get any time fitness or any man tattoo, we reimburse it. All we ask is that the local club or the person sends us a picture of the tattoo and a story why, and then, of course, we reimburse, and we're just proud to be a part of it. But I, I got to tell you, every single tattoo story is almost like a snowflake. Have you ever heard the term that no snowflake is ever the same? There's no such thing as everyone getting it for one reason. And it's never about treadmills. It's never about, you know, I, hey, I made so much money. It's always a very personal reason about either them making a very important life change or them being a part of someone else's life change. You know, if you're like a, a personal trainer, if you're a club owner, you just know that you're, you're helping your community and helping your people get to a healthier place, right? You're helping them be the best version of themselves. And so although it is a tattoo of our brand, it's really more about them. It's really about this new level of self-love and self-respect they have for themselves because they made this unbelievable change and they don't want to go back to being the old person. They love this new, this new version of themselves. And so it's really something to commemorate who they are and the hard work they did or the marathon they ran or, or, and we're just a small part of it. So to a certain degree, you know, we play a small role to help them get to that best place in their life. But you know what? Like a personal trainer, we can help you. We can guide you, but we can't lift the weight. You have to do it yourself. And so these people have earned it and therefore they want to symbolize that with a tattoo. So it's all about what they've earned and, and the respect they have for themselves. And, and that's, you focus a lot on the idea that, this isn't just a physical change, but this is a, a wholesale emotional and, and lifestyle change, a perspective change. You talk a lot about the importance of emotion and, and thought in transforming physically. Now, tell us about the concept, because as I did more and more research uh, about your company, I got, came across this term, return on emotional investment. Talk yes. about what return on emotional investment means to you as the CEO of this company. 
so every company uses the term ROI, return on investment. So, and if you're a franchisee and you're going to, if you're a prospective franchisee and you look at buying Anytime Fitness, you're going to scrutinize this opportunity as to how much I need to invest in capital and how much I'm going to get a return on that capital if I open up this business. And so we're very respectful of that. I mean, obviously we have to take care of, you know, the unit level and franchisee profitability, but we use a term here called the return on emotional investment because there is more to life than just making a dollar, right? And so our return on emotional investment is all about working at the intersection of what we call the four P's, which is people, purpose, profits in play. So I, and by the way, I try to live there. It's a, it's a philosophy for me in life. And so think about that. If you can live or work at this intersection of people, purpose, profits, play, where you're surrounding yourself with great people and you're helping them be a better version of themselves. If you're doing something about that business that makes the world or makes people uh, better, and we do with Anytime Fitness, that's a great deal of purpose involved in us. And then for us, profits are, are of course, monetary profits. They're also the, the benefits of better health or better lifestyle. You know, there's different terms of profit there. And then the last one is play. I mean, we all spend over half our waking hours at work. And I think it, it, it's very sad if you don't enjoy that experience. I mean, half our waking hours. And so we, we are very intentional about having some playful activities during our workday. I mean, here at Anytime Fitness, it's always challenging and stressful, but you're going to hear laughter in our hallways. And so, you know, if we can insert that into a work. So, I mean, if you can make the world a better place, make money when you do it, do it with people you enjoy, and then you can have fun. To me, that's like the holy grail. It's the secret of life and the secret of business. And so that describes return on emotional investment where every single part of you is gratified and engaged in your life, in your job. And that's what keeps me you know, jumping out of bed on a Monday morning to, to come in here and work with people I love and do very, very important work to, to improve people. And is, has that always been a part of your life? The, the idea of evaluating things by return on emotional investment? Because obviously well, you've, you've infused it into the company. But did you make decisions as you early on in your career? Because I'm thinking if, if, you know, if someone had said to me as I left university, every single th job you look at, you have to evaluate by return on investment in terms of finances, but also return on emotional investment, I would have made different decisions. Did, has it always been a part of your life or, or where did it come from? Um, it, I, I saw share a story which, which I think defines my mindset, right? We all have this mindset that we are, to a certain degree, some of it we're born with genetically, but then it, you know, frames itself here as you continue to grow up and evolve. And so, look, uh, you know, everything about me was working fine when I was born. I had no physical deficiencies. But I had an older brother who was born with a heart defect, and this is, you know, back in 1965, and he's born with a small hole in his heart, and he was three and a half years older than me. But he, you know, although he was older than me, he was physically weaker than me. So imagine being a big brother and your little brother's better at you in everything, sports, strength. I mean, just, you know, we were always loved to go play outside. Well, when he was born, he wasn't supposed to live past the age of five. And he was lucky enough to be born in the state of Minnesota where we have an incredible amount of, of leading heart technology. And so, uh, you know, back in the 70s, I mean, he, he had three open heart surgeries. And look, he ended up living until the age of 18, which is longer than he should have. Yet, unfortunately, he passed away as, as a senior in high school. But, you know, on the day of his last surgery, which, by the way, was a heart transplant surgery, and we're talking about 1982, so this is, they were pioneering heart transplants back then here at the University of Minnesota. But on the day of his last surgery, you know, the doctors were very um, candid with my parents and saying that, you know, my brother had a 50-50 shot at um, getting, coming out of the surgery alive. And so if you can imagine, I'm a parent today, but can you imagine 
literally you had to go see your son for potentially the last time. You know, it was about, it was about the chance of a coin flip. So heads he lives, tails he loses. And look, unfortunately, my, my brother passed away that day. You know, he got the wrong side of the coin. But on one hand, he was very fortunate to be born in Minnesota, among the best heart surgeons in the world. And he lived till he's age of 18, not just to the age of five. So on one hand, he was lucky. But of course, on the other hand, he was unlucky. And had he been born with that condition today, well, now they can fix that stuff. So, you know, and what that left me with is growing up with a, with a sick sibling who spent a great deal of time in the hospital, I just always had a, a tremendous amount of gratitude for the opportunities I was born into, right? There's nothing wrong with me physically. And so I'm grateful for what I've been given, who I am, where I've grown up. And, I, and if you're grateful for something, you're automatically you're happier, in my opinion, and you don't take it for granted. I just don't want to take this opportunity for granted. And so I think it's, it's given me an urgency in my life or, or this uh, motivation in my life to do as much as I can. And, you know, I just think sometimes people are not grateful for, for the things they have, whether it's physical, emotional, their upbringing, you know, just be, being born in this country, I think is something we to be grateful for. So, you know, that, that experience taught me to be grateful. And I, I also live at this philosophy. I, I like to tell people live like you have a 50, 50 chance of living past five years. And so think about that for a second. If you were told today, Dudley, or Drew, that you had a 50-50 chance of living past five years, I think what that would do is that would give you some sense of urgency to say, guess what? I can't be radically foolish. I can't go blow all my money because I may live past five years. So I can't like, quit my job. However, I'd better take advantage of these opportunities to you know, do something with my parents, do something with my friends, take that trip to Italy, or you know, do something that's on my bucket list. You know, don't wait till I'm 60 to, to knock off your bucket list. And so... I try to give people a sense of urgency to live the life they want tomorrow. Don't wait. And, and to do that, you need to be in the best, you want to be in the best physical shape. You want to be in the best emotional shape. And so I, I really tell people that, man, there is no, life isn't certain, you know, so you better take advantage of these important moments that, that you're going to cherish, but start to do them now. Don't put them off because none of us can guarantee that three, four, five, six years from now, we're going to be here. Or guess what? When you want to go fishing with your dad and you put it off, who knows if he's going to be here five years from now? And, and I know that sounds a bit morbid, but that's what gives me an urgency of life is to, to accomplish, um, accomplish it as much as I can. And so that, that is kind of my philosophy. That, that's amazing because I've often said to people, there's no worse feeling than going to the funeral of someone you desperately cared about. And the last thing you said to them was terrible. And, and that resonates because it happened to me twice. And, and you're right. But what I love is I, I, I always in this podcast, I love the opportunity to talk to smart people about cliches out there in the world. And one of them is, you know, live like you're going to die tomorrow. And I had a friend of mine named Mark Black once say, and he's, he's gone through a heart and lung transplant. He said, that's terrible advice. Like, you don't want to live in a world where everyone's living like they're going to die tomorrow. Correct. But this idea of you have a 50-50 chance. So you're going to have to, in some ways, hedge your bets because you got to make good decisions. But at the other time, don't put stuff up. What a great way of looking at it. Live like there's a 50-50 chance. And I don't think it's morbid. You want to look at the other side. It really is empowering. I love that. But I love the term return on emotional investment because it creates a terminology where we can look at what we're doing every day differently. And for me, someone said, you know, you spend too much money. And I said, well, you know what it is? It's because I don't feel like I'm giving up a part of myself to earn it. I ask a lot of people who make a lot of money, like, and they get obsessed with it. And I think it's because if you give up a piece of who you are, 
in order to earn it, you become incredibly protective of it. But if you, people say, well, how do you be generous? Simple, like whatever you do to make your money, love it. So it doesn't feel like it's taking a part of your soul. So return on emotional investment is a cool way of looking at it. And you, well, and you if ahead. you look at all the happiness studies, you know, they, they, it's always out there that it's like once a person gets a pass, like, and I think the figure has been like 75 grand a year, their happiness doesn't like go up incrementally. Like if you make 75 grand a year compared to a person who makes 150 grand a year, their happiness isn't doubled, right? It like goes up very fractionally, you know, past a certain amount. And so I, I you know, the old phrase that money doesn't buy happiness. I mean, it does buy you know, security and, and, and um, you know, helps and buys a little bit of comfort. But your happiness, the more you make, does not, you know, uh, it's not a linear growth along with the, the money you have. So, and, and I'm not downplaying that. Look, everyone should should try to make as much as they can. Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. But like you said, what are you willing to sacrifice for it? And, and don't sacrifice the important things. Well, and you... You've made a lot of people a lot of money, and you've been a catalyst for it. And they, they help make, you make money as well. But you invited me to speak at your annual conference where you bring a bunch of these together. And half of your speakers don't speak about the fitness industry. Half of them are on personal growth. Why such a focus on the personal development side? I mean, and you do classes for your employees, but they're not, you know, here's how to be a better accountant. Here's how to be a better manager. It's, you know, gardening, cooking, personal finance. I think you call them ingredients classes. Why yeah. that focus as opposed yeah, to? Well, I, so if you want a culture of growth, right, whether it's in your small business or even here, then everyone should be growing. And I think personal growth brings upon professional growth. And so we're just trying to help people maybe be lifelong students to get better personally and better professionally. And, you know, anytime fitness wants to be, you know, I, when people come into this, it's, I tell them from day one, we don't just want you to be better fitness club owners. We want you to be the best at whatever you want to be the best at. I think we can make you a better parent. We can make you a better gardener. We can make you, you know, a better high school coach. You know, whatever it is you do, we want to be able to impact that. So when you look back on your time with Anytime Fitness as an employee or franchise owner, you can say, you know what? I made Anytime Fitness better, but guess what? They made me better too. And so I guess it goes back to, to wanting to be kind of a coach or leader that inspires or motivates you to be better in your life, not just at your job. And that's, that's, I guess that's gratifying for us. And it's, you know, kind of those things that legacy building, right? Is, is how can we just make people a better version of themselves, whatever that is. Now, I, I attended this conference. I saw you on stage. I watched the way that people at the conference look at you. You're someone they look up to. And you must know that to some degree. But you once stood, I'm told you stood in front of your entire company and asked everyone who'd ever woken up scared to raise their hand. And, and it seems odd as the man in charge of a company starts talking about fear. Why did you do that, and what happened when you did? Well, so when, when franchisees, I mean, we all have some fear, especially when you're, like, going to work for yourself. you got to sign this lease, right? And um, unfortunately, we're not willing to admit it. We're not willing to be vulnerable. And what I'm trying to tell them is, first of all, if you feel nervous or insecure, you have, if you have, uh, you know, self-doubts, awesome. That is absolutely normal. And I still feel it today. In fact, the bigger we get, the bigger those voices get, but I don't let it hold me back. I want to be aware of it. I want to try to use it as fuel, but I want you to know that it's perfectly fine to feel that way. In fact, if you don't feel that way, if you're incredibly overconfident, I'm worried for you. So I just want to share my vulnerability to let them know that I'm human, I'm approachable, and that you should feel this way. It's okay to feel that way. In fact, as, as kind of an entrepreneur, you should never, ever feel like 100% comf- uh, comfortable. I, to this day, I never think we have it figured out, and I'm always 
questioning myself, questioning, am I bringing enough? Am, am I doing the right things? I mean, it's just something an entrepreneur learns to live with. And so I, I want people to know that, man, I'm human and I'm vulnerable. And it, it's just okay to feel that way. I want them to understand I've, I, I admire their risk and I admire the fact that they're willing to invest in themselves. And it's scary. But guess what? We're in this together. And vulnerability gets talked about a lot. I just talked about it with a, a, a former guest as well. And people, you know, Brene Brown's work has talked about being open about your vulnerability. Patrick Lencioni talks about uh, vulnerability-based trust is so important. How, how do you find the right balance, though? Do you feel there's a such thing as too much vulnerability? How, how do you know when it's all right to say, okay, this is something that scares me. This is something I'm not good at. Is there a time and a place to put it away? Or is there ever too much vulnerability? <laughs> I think it's a great question. I, I think, look, at the end of the day, people do want leaders who are competent and competent and you're not willing to, or, or willing to go into that dark cave where there's some unknown, right? And so it, it's, it's a, that's a really great question. And I think you have to be authentic, but yes, you, you also can't lack some confidence uh, in, in your leadership skills. So I, I, I don't know what the, what the right mix is. You know, is it like a 80, 20, 80% confident or 20% uh, vulnerability? I don't know. I, I guess what I would tell people is just be, you have to be authentic and you, you, you just can't fake authenticity. So I think it's okay to share what you're feeling, who you are, but guess what? Together, let's uh, let's have the courage to go into that dark cave, that unknown area, and uh, let let's explore together. So I, I don't I don't know if I have the the right scientific mix, but I think it's a wonderful question. And yes, I think you can be too vulnerable, especially in a leader leadership position. You've got to find a good balance. Now, talking about dark caves, in my world, one of the big dark caves is reality television. I'm sorry, but this this is I watch it. I'm like, oh god, I feel terrible. But you dove into the dark cave of reality television. You and Dave Mortensen, your co-founder, appeared on ABC's show Secret yeah. Millionaire, and That's I didn't correct. know this till I started diving in uh, and did a little research. So tell us about how that experience came about, what it was all about, and what you learned from it. Wow, I'm telling you what, man, awesome experience. Um, you know, on, on so many fronts. I mean, first of all, you, you are deprived. They, they, during this seven-day experience, your cell phone's gone. There's no newspapers, no TV, no radio. You're completely deprived. of. They try to shut out the outside world. And you have to be like 100% present. And that's kind of new to me. You know, I, I'm, I, I can sometimes be a little bit de detached, which is kind of to a certain degree also makes me a good CEO. But I'm, I'm not always forced to be 100% present. So that was great. And then, of course, they put you in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen next and you have to be vulnerable and they work your butt off. And so Dave and I were locked into this home for a week. We were volunteering all day long. And although it's a 42 minute of airtime, I mean, there were 200 plus hours of us working with these organizations and you, you kind of fall in love with with the people and what they're doing and you remind yourself you know when you talk about everyday leadership like you have and there are people out there in these communities doing unbelievable work these micro uh, charitable organizations that don't have a big budget yet can still have a big impact and so you, you come away from that even more impressed with humanity more impressed with people that are probably working in your community today that you don't even know about that are in their small part, even if it's a, a $25,000 annual budget or $250,000 annual budget, they're making a difference. And so I couldn't help come away emotionally touched by that, you know, fall in love with, with, with what they did and who they are. We still work with them and talk with them today. 
And, and you know, you just take the Dave and I bonded together as, as individuals. You can't help but be a, a bit more introspective on your life. And again, you can't help but walk away and being grateful. And so it was a, it really was, I, I'd call it a top 10 life experience. And, and for those who didn't actually watch the show, because I hadn't actually seen it, could you just give us a little bit of a taste of what the show was about? So Dave and I are, are, and by the way, we don't even know until we get to the airport, but when we got to the airport, we learned we were flying to Oklahoma City. And, uh, you know, there are some very uh, poor, lower-income areas of Oklahoma City, and we're put in a house, and then we're, we're told to just kind of walk around the neighborhood and try to discover um, some uh, volunteer agencies. And then, and so we would go in there saying, look, we're here filming a documentary on volunteering, and so we'd just like to help. Uh, for the next week and these uh, you get to know these uh, charitable organizations and you're volunteering now this whole time of course there's there's cameras but you're never interacting with with uh, the crew and you know what you just are thrown into volunteering whether that is putting or taking apart prosthetic limbs which we did for one of the limbs for life down in oklahoma city whether you're helping a youth charitable uh, wrestling organization like we did or if you're you know repairing boulevards which is what we did for closer earth and so you know we were shoveling we were uh, hauling boxes and it was august by the way in oklahoma city very very hot and humid and we were you know just doing typical work that uh, any volunteer would do for the organizations and at the end of the week, you know, you go in and say, hey, look, we're not just volunteers. We've actually been very fortunate to, to have some financial success in our life. And therefore, look, we're very touched at this experience. We'd like to give you uh, our personal contribution financially to help your organization move forward. So we are very fortunate to, to write personal checks to these organizations uh, and, you know, bring value so in, in they could continue to impact the people in their community. And we worked with three organizations. Unfortunately, the show only showed two of them because of time uh, constraints. But it was still, again, it was a wonderful experience. We met some great people. And, you know, we just got an update from one of them because Dave and I put a scholarship together for some of the teens in one of the organizations that the show didn't see. But the cool part is those, those youth are now off to college using some of that money that we gave for scholarships. And so that's just one example of the impact we're still having. And, and again, we still connect with them. We're still making contributions. And then Dave and I just went to uh, Oklahoma City a couple years ago and uh, connected with them. And, and it's, you know, it would be a lifelong connection that, uh, that we'll always, uh, always treasure. So some good comes out of reality television. <laughs> yes, I will say that. I, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I don't really watch much or engage in much reality television. But yeah, this is one of those uh, tear jerkers where you, you couldn't help but watch the show and just feel better about humanity. So yes, this is one of those exceptions. And it's odd, you know, right after I, I reached out and said, can we talk on this podcast? I got an email uh, that really caught me by surprise. And as I did some research, I realized that you'd had a similar experience. I don't know if the listeners know this, but I, I lost a, a hundred pounds or so. And uh, in on my 38th birthday, I, I put out a blog post. I'll link to it here. That says 38 things I've learned in 38 years. And one of them was I've learned don't hate your body, but don't lie to yourself when it's unhealthy. And all of a sudden, this is a year after the post, I get an email from someone who kind of went off uh, and said, you know, I really like your work, but here you are fat shaming. And, you know, I, I'm going to be honest, I had never, I had never thought of what I was doing there as, as fat shaming. And then I, I realized you got some of the same pushback when you released your book, which I love the title. It's Working Out Sucks. Yeah, yeah. And where's the line between encouraging healthy habits and fat shaming? Because I know one of your chapters was money is allergic to fat people. And I said yeah. that 
And my intention was, you know what? You shouldn't hate yourself. You are who you are. But don't lie to yourself that you could be better and, and deny it. Because some, sometimes not starting something that you know will make your life better is a form of giving up. Even if not starting is a way of giving up sometimes. So how, where is that line between encouraging healthy habits and, and fat shaming? And have you ever sort of faced that same thing when you've made your life trying to help people transform? Is that the same as saying to people you shouldn't be happy with who you are now? Boy, Drew, I think that is a really good question. And I can say that I have to sometimes, for some individual's perspective, I've crossed the line. In fact, some of the chapters and wording I used in that book, I had a lot of personal anguish. Should I put this in print? I really did. I, I struggled with it. But if you read the forward of the book, it kind of, I'm asking for your permission as a reader to just get blunt, right? To just cut through all the crap and let me just take on every single excuse you can think about. And then if you read, you know, some of the other success stories, and I, I had two experts help me in nutrition, fitness, and also a, a psychologist actually wrote the second part of the book. And so if you really read the whole book, you'll see that there is actually a great deal of personal care. I mean, I just care. I really want every single reader to like be the best version of themselves. I care immensely. But part of the way I did that is I'm going to have this full frontal assault on, you know what, let me just get rid of all these myths and let me just cut to the chase and be very, very candid. And so if you read the full book, you get it. Now, yes, if you take snippets of that, you could say to a certain degree that there was some language in there that a CEO of a fitness franchise shouldn't use. So I'm aware of that. And to answer your question is as a coach, I think some people respond really well to getting a kick in the butt. And other people respond to more of a hug. And, you know, if I had the time to sit down with every single reader, I would try to understand that. And then I would apply my coaching techniques to help them. But, but I can't. I'm writing a book for the general audience. And for those people who might respond to a kick in the butt, they're going to love that book. If you respond more to a pat on the back, then chapters two and chapters three might be better. And so yeah, to answer your question is I think, I think there's a, a fine line there. And you are not going to keep everyone happy. In fact, that's a mantra that we use here at the corporate office, which is, if you're keeping everyone happy, you're doing something wrong. And so I had to write that book with, you know what, I can't water it down. I'm going to piss some people off. Some people are going to love this. Some people are going to hate this, but I'm going to be direct. And I'm going to just try to, for those who respond to that, this is going to help them. And so uh, I was willing to take the risk of pissing some people off. And, and some people may put me in the category of fat shaming. And if you, but if you read the whole tone of the book, you'll come away with that's not my intention. Yeah, and you actually started a conversation afterwards uh, asking, is fat a bad word? And you actually made a donation for every post. Am I correct on that? That's correct, yes. We did that uh, through social media. Is fat and, a bad word? Well, I, I think that's that's left up to each individual. I mean, you, you know, what do you think? You you've lost the weight. Is fat a bad word? Yeah, you know what? I don't know because and it's, I've been kicking it in my head as well. It, uh, and I think that what I I actually called this person who sent me an email because I wanted to have a conversation, and it was interesting because I said, you know. I appreciate you letting me know this because I think it's important when people say to you in a constructive way, you, I don't think you realized the impact of what you were doing because the last thing I ever want to do is to make people feel bad. I mean, my entire life is about trying to make people feel better. And I mm -hmm. think you and I are alike in this because sometimes when something you really intended to make people feel better turns out not to, it hit me in a very personal way. Uh, and I'm sure it, it did the same with you. But I believed, the reason I said that to people was, 
uh, and, and maybe this will be controversial as well, but I, I, at your conference, I had someone explain to me that sometimes people are overweight because of things far beyond their control, specifically in, in that case, too. One, there are hormonal imbalances that can cause it. And two, there are socio- socioeconomic issues that make it almost impossible for people to exercise and make healthy choices. But there's a huge portion of us, and I was one of them, who was big because I made bad choices every day. Choices that were fully within my control to make better, I made them poorly. And I think that most, I don't even know if I want to say most, but I think the percentage of people who are big and unhealthy because of choices they make are much, is much bigger than people like to pretend or people are pretending that a much bigger percentage are big or unhealthy because of things beyond their control. And I really want people to know, I think sometimes we're lying to ourselves and I was lying to myself for 15 years that these were were things beyond my control. They weren't. They were bad decisions every day. And I wanted people to know I believe I could be better. I believe others can be better too. And sometimes, as I said, I'm like, I'm not entirely sure that telling someone that they don't have the power to make better choices isn't being more disrespectful than telling them that they've been making bad choices. I don't know if if that that resonated with you. Yes, uh, completely. And it's funny you mentioned genetics or socioeconomic conditions. Look, I, I thought one of the uh, chapters in the book is called Genetics Suck. And look, I mean, there are people who obviously are, are going to face genetical challenges or socioeconomic. I'm well aware of that. Um, but, but as you mentioned, there are a greater portion of people who have the uh, ability, both in their daily activity or choices they make, to be healthier. Now, look, they may never have a six pack. At, you know, lower single-digit body fat, but they can be healthier than they are today. There just simply aren't any excuses. And so it was more for that crowd, but, but even for those people, and, you know, and look, at the end of the day, physical activity is free, right? You just have to make a choice to do it. So even if you're in a, an area that is socioeconomically challenged or if you're just, you know, whatever excuses, you, you can do your best to be healthier, and we can all do that. And so I'm um, just, you know, I'm not a big fan of excuses for the most part, and uh, I just, I just want to help as many people as possible. And some people that may resonate with, and some people won't. But I, I know I'm not going to get through to everyone, but uh, I can get through to, to some. And, and you really have. And, and you, it's odd because part of the reason I went on that voyage is I loved what I did. But I stood up on stages and told people, look, leadership is making one big decision to make a series of consistent positive small decisions. And yet mm-hmm. here I was clearly not taking care of myself. When you hired me to speak, you did so based on a video where I was over 300 pounds and you run a fitness organization did mm-hmm. it not hurt my like did it, and I know I want to ask you this did it not hurt my credibility as someone who talks about making conscious positive decisions when you looked and saw that what was going through your head when you said I'm going to ask this 300 pound guy to come and speak at a fitness conference oh no I don't think so I mean look we we uh you know what I don't see I'll tell you this I have zero tolerance for any type of discrimination. When, when I hear an idea from anyone or I hear them talk, what, what I see or what I hear is this curious brain or this passionate heart. Like I don't see skin color. I don't see body weight. I don't see gender, right? I, don't, I guess I don't see that stuff. So when, when we're thinking about a, someone who's going to bring content, it's about the quality of message and how they can impact the people in our audience. Right. And then, sure. I mean, I, I guess that doesn't even resonate with us. I mean, hey, maybe, maybe you could come and get some some inspiration from us if, in fact, you want to be healthier. But, uh, you know, what? I, well, I I try to resonate with, you know, I, I look at you and I see your mind. and I see your heart. That's who I see. And then what's on the outside is what's on the outside. I, I hope that makes sense. I mean, you know, I hear it, it, it. What I love about our company here is over half of our leadership team are women. 
and I think it's crazy we're even talking about that in 2016. But uh, you know, we're our, our overall leadership is, is far more gender balanced than than most companies our size. And I, I promise you, when when someone brings an idea, I don't see tenure, I don't see you know what what their sexual orientation is. I mean, none of that stuff matters to me. It's just bring your mind, bring your heart, and uh, we'll, we'll absolutely harness it and make the best of it. I love it. I guess the the challenge for me was I didn't see it sometimes. And it was odd, you know, I'll, I'll be completely candid. It was, I knew that there, there was great ideas. I knew that I loved sharing them. I knew they had an impact. But when I looked, I didn't see it or I didn't feel credibility. And, and that's a big change that's happened when I've made better decisions. It's not, it's not how I look, but I feel as if I have more credibility with myself and with others because I feel like I'm living in it. And I think a big part of the work I talk about with everyday leadership is, is saying to people, I don't know the secret to happiness, but one of the secrets to unhappiness is when there's a disconnect between how you conceive of yourself and how you know you're behaving. And I think Mm -hmm. when people talk about my health voyage, it's been like, really, for most of it, it's been about closing that gap, that gap between how I see myself, what I talk about, and whether or not I'm living it. And when that's closer, it's a better day. And I love that yeah. you're, you're no BS. I love that you're, you're, there's no BS talk on health. That's why I loved your book. So let's tie it for leadership. What are some of the reasons that leadership sucks? <laughs> well, it's, it's hard. You know, it, it, it's hard. It's, you know, you, uh, number one, you've got to be very accountable, right? And I, I tell people, if you want to do anything remarkable, if you want to be any type of leader, you just better get used to critics, and I'll give you an example, like the most recent Star Wars film is now, I believe, the most successful film of all time, if you look in terms of box office dollars. And if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, all that consumer feedback, they rate movies, and that's pretty accurate. They have a 93% approval rating of the, of the most recent Star Wars. And that's great. That's, that's higher than the average Rotten Tomatoes review. But guess what? That means 7% didn't like the movie. That means millions of people globally did not like the movie, one of the, the most most successful movie of all time. So, look, what I'm telling people is you're going to have 5, 10, 15, 20% who just don't like your ideas, who don't like you as a leader, who don't like uh, the agenda, you know, whatever you have, whatever you're, whatever you're trying to do. And so if you can't take that, you, you just are not going to be an effective leader. So does it suck to, to hear people say they don't like you, don't like your ideas, or, you know, it's, it's just not working for them? Sure. But, you just you know, you've got you've to be able to handle that. So, um, and it's, it can be stressful. You know, one of the primary reasons I work out is to handle stress. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, Dave and I, my partner, are making decisions that impact thousands of franchisees and, and potentially, you know, millions of members. And so, you know, to a certain degree, that can be stressful. We are we're making decisions that could impact the, the financial lives and, and in turn their family lives for franchisees. So, you know, we, we take a great deal of responsibility there. So um, we have accountability, there's stress, there's, you know, a, a lot of stuff going on. And so uh, you, you still want to find some, some life balance. So I guess I would just say it's, you know, it's not easy to be a leader, but it's very gratifying to, to know that you can make an impact. Yeah, the, uh, I recently said in a tweet that said, everything you want in the world is on the other side of something shitty. And, and I think <laughs> leadership is, leadership, weight loss, it's, uh, it's all there. And, you know, that is something I, I've had to come to grips with is that if you walk onto a stage, you know, an actual literal stage or a figurative one, it's like someone's going to hate you. And that's a hard thing to, to swallow is that when you decide to try to send out something into the world, to be, to be visible in doing that, it's just the nature of the world. Someone's going to hate you. And, and that's a, a tough thing to come to grips with, isn't it? 
Well, if you, uh, you really did this. I'm not saying because you're in a podcast, but you did a phenomenal job at speaking at our annual conference. And we have ratings on all of our speakers, cause, and we have ratings on our full conference. But even though you were one of the most highly rated speakers we've had in, in 11 years of conferences, guess what? There were still people in your review who said, I didn't like his message. Nah, boring. Nah, blase, right? It didn't hit home with me. So, I mean, you, you know it. You live in the world where every time you get on stage, you know there's going to be some people in the audience who are going to tune you out, walk out early, get on their cell phone, or just rate you poorly. You, it's going to happen. And so, and, you know, people get – you just to a certain degree have to get used to that. And then, you know, there's, there's some glamour in, in our, your role getting up on stage or saying my role being as a leader, but there's so much grind that people don't see. I mean, I, you know, I brought my kids to the office not too long ago, and they're like, Dad, boy, your, your day's boring. All you do is sit in meetings, and you're on the phone, and you're, you know, you're doing all this stuff. And, you know, what people don't see about your job is the countless hours on an airplane and waiting in airports and prep, prep, you know, prepping for your talks. And so, you know, sometimes people just aren't aware of the grind. And so it's make no mistake, I am working harder today than I've worked in the 14 years of Anytime Fitness. And it's not very glamorous. It is a lot of just grinding out, trying to get better every single day. Well, so let's imagine there's a school out there. Every CEO in the world has to go there before they start their first day on the job as a CEO. And you, you know, Professor Runyon, you're given the task of teaching the first class <laughs> on the first day. What's the yep. first thing that comes out of your mouth when you start that class? I would start with self-awareness, right? I mean, to be, I think, an effective leader, you better have a sense of, who you are, right? And you've got to be very brutal in your assessment of strengths and weaknesses personally, because ultimately that is going to show up in the work, workplace, right? And then opportunities for growth. And so if you start with that, now, of course, over time, you can try to elevate those strengths in the workplace. You can account for your weaknesses, whether it's through hiring or whether it's through trying to, to get better at them. And of course, you can now maximize or optimize your culture based on, you know, the opportunities you have. And then it, 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 that would set the path for personal professional growth. Okay, this is my baseline of who I am today. Where do I need to get to to be a better leader, to be better at the business side or be better at the people side? And so I guess I would start with self-awareness because you need to, to, to grab a baseline of who you are as, a, as an individual and leader to, to chart your strategic plan for who you want to be. Uh, because ultimately, as a leader, you instill the culture and you, you instill the direction. So you need to have some personal direction first. And what would you tell them that you'd say, look, tons of people have told you this. Tons of people are going to tell you this. Don't listen to it. It's BS. What piece of advice are you saying is floating out there that you just wish people would stop passing on to each other? Um, yeah, it's a good one. I, I do hate the cliche that the grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, you know, it, it isn't. I mean, you know, you already have a, a lawn that you need to take care of. And, and look, be grateful for, for the opportunities you've been given. And so I, I guess that's a, a cliche I kind of fall on. You know, it's a... Um, and then I, I think it's, I, I don't know if this is what people often say, but I would just try to tell people that you, if you're keeping everyone happy, you're doing something wrong. It just means you're not changing. You're not risking enough. You know, you're not, uh, you, you've got to continue to push forward and humans don't like change. And so, you know, if you're changing, you're going to have unrest and there's kind of a healthy friction there. Now let's, now we're talking about a, a class of CEOs. Let's change the students in this hypothetical. Let's mm -hmm. make it you on the first day of high school. And mm -hmm. you get to sit down and sort of say, okay, we got a one-on-one -on -one with that 13, 14 year old version of yourself. 
what are some of the things you've learned about the world you'd want to tell yourself on that day that that so you know you can start knowing them way earlier than you learn them in real life? Oh man, I, if I can go back in time, I'd give myself the biggest kick in the butt ever. I mean, I was a, a, a C student at best. You know, I, I did not apply myself. I did. You know, I'm I'm a I, I'm I'm a learner today. I spend more time reading in a day. And I probably did in about a month when I was in high school. I mean, I literally tried to spend an hour or two of my day reading. I mean, I've become a lifelong student. I did not have the deep uh, sense of curiosity that I do today. I did not have that intention towards learning or the high degree of motivation. So I would have went back and kicked myself in the butt to not only perform better in class, but just to be more generally curious about how things worked or why things were that way. So I, I wish I could go back and that's what I would do. Is, uh, I just did not, I was not operating with, with everything. I, di- I didn't bring myself, everything I had to, to school. Now, imagine you can hand over to that young guy one question. One question that you say, look, man, you got to have an answer for this every day. And the idea is in answering that question, that version of yourself is going gonna, is gonna to do something every day. What question would you give that day one version of yourself and say, by the end of every single day for the rest of your life, make sure you got an answer for this? Ooh, can, can I list two questions? Oh, yeah, of course. All right, one, one question is simply this. What did you learn today? All right, I mean, if you think about it, if, if, if you just were to get one fraction better every single day, that compounds. And so at the end of every day, what did you learn? Right? And so you have to, be, you have to almost... Uh, operationalize learning into your life, right? And it could be about anything. It doesn't have to be about business. It could just be, what did you learn, right? And, and the other one would be is, who did you impact? Or, or how did you make the, uh, the people in your life better? How did you make your community better? How did you make the world better? You know, what did you impact? You know, it's, it, and it, it gets me, that would get me out. So that, that would do two things. It would turn me into a lifelong student. And then number two, it would make me think beyond myself, I would think, all right, who am I impacting? What are my actions every day? How do I make the world a better place? So those are the two questions I think I would want to ask myself every single day. And and you talked about self-awareness being where you'd start that first CEO class. So I'd love to turn that lens on you. What, because I love talking about values, and you just talked about operationalizing learning. You talked about operationalizing impact. But what would you say if you could go back to day one and start building yourself into the leader that you want to be, the person that you want to be, what would you say are three of the foundational values that you really want to embody every single day? Um, I, you know, I think who I try to be every single day now, if, if I had to sum it up in three words, I mean, number one, you know, I want to be uh, grateful. And I think I mentioned it to you why. I, I never, no matter what, I want to be, I, I got four healthy kids. I'm so darn grateful they're healthy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for how I was brought up and who I am today and the opportunities that I have. I just really have a deep sense of gratitude and I don't want to take any of that for granted. And, and, and because of that, I never like sit around thinking, oh, all this success was because of me. I'm like, that's, I think that's crap. Um, so number one, I want to be grateful. Number two, I want to be authentic. I want to be comfortable in my own skin. I just want to be, I don't want to have to be fake. I just want to be who I am. And I want to show that authenticity. And look, I want to treat every single person uh, like as they're important. I don't care if you're driving the cab or if you're another CEO, I promise you, I'm going to give you who I am and try to give you the best version of that and try to make an impact with you. I, it just doesn't, I want to be authentic. I, I, I just, uh, look, I, I, what, a pet peeve of mine is when people manage up differently than they manage down. And I promise you, if you're a brand new employee here, I'm going to give you a hug and, and listen to you just like it would if you've been here for 10 years. 
And I, I guess the last one would be maybe inspirational. I mean, if I can, if, if you and I come across each other in life, I hope that maybe in some certain way I can inspire you to, to maybe think a little bit differently, maybe give you a spark for a bit more motivation, maybe to ask yourself questions. Am I doing enough to be as healthy as possible? Am I doing Am I learning enough? Am I, am I impacting enough other people? Am I just living my life the way I want to and at full capacity? Right. I mean, what I've found out over this, you know, as a, as a study of humans over the last 13 and a half years of franchising and, and seeing members in the fitness industry and seeing franchise owners, I can tell you with certainty that the vast majority of us underestimate the strength we have physically, emotionally. Uh, we just underestimate ourselves. I've seen people do amazing things, but guess what? It's all, most of us have it it's sitting inside ourselves. We literally can, I mean, I mean, look, I'm not, you can't do anything in life. You know, I know that we all have some certain, to certain degree limitations, but so many of us can do far more than what we're doing. And man, I see members and I see franchise owners all the time who underestimate their, their physical, emotional, and mental strength. And if I can, if there's anything I can do, it's like, I want to unlock that. I want to tell you, I want to shake you. I want to like pull back a layer and say, gosh, darn it. I want to help you find the strength because you're going to be a much better person. I mean, in all these, you know, franchisee and member success stories, what I love about it the most is people never say, Chuck, I'm wealthier and I'm happier. Or they never say, because I look better in the mirror, I'm happier. You know what they say is, oh my gosh, I just like who I am better. I like my, my personality is different. I have more energy. I'm more outgoing. I, I care more about things. I'm doing more. I'm like experiencing more in life. To me, the scale or the mirror, it's just a nice little side effect. It's just like, oh, great, I look better. That is cool. But guess what? The biggest change people have is about how they go after more life. And so uh, I guess if I could help people find their strength to be everything they want to be, that is kind of a, a goal of mine is to help more people live at that intersection of people, purpose, profits, play, what we talked about earlier. And that's kind, of, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but <laughs> man, it was awesome. And you know what? It's it's true. It changes the way you feel about whether or not you're living up to. I think part of the my health voyage has been discovering that I'm a better person than I thought I was. And I don't mean that in how I look. I mean that there were things I used to say. I don't believe in you, Drew, for to do this. And it's odd to have this conversation today. I just uh, you know the scale is not something I spend all the time on anymore because I've realized it's more than that. But I'm at a 20-year low in weight today for the first time. It, you know, I crossed a threshold. Congrats. Thank you. And I look at it and I say, you know what? You did a whole bunch of things that a version of you used to say you couldn't. And uh, Neil Pashrika, who wrote The Happiness Equation, was a guest, and he said one of the keys to happiness is overvaluing yourself. Is, is not, and that goes against everything that we talk about, or, or we, we do usually is is we don't overvalue ourselves. We think we're supposed to be humble. And I, honestly, man, I think humility isn't, isn't ignoring the fact that you're awesome. It's just recognizing that the things that make you awesome don't, doesn't make you better than other people. That's what humility is. But it's not denying that you're amazing. And one of the things I love, you know, grateful, authentic, inspirational, can you give us an example? Because I know that, that your job gives you so many opportunities to do this. But for listeners out there who are like, man, I wish my CEO paid attention you know, and wanted to do those things. I think often people in leadership roles or things that we see as traditional leadership roles are paying attention and people don't even realize it. So can you give us an example of when someone who worked for you or, or someone who, who holds a position that wouldn't be traditionally seen as officially a leadership position that in the way the world looks would be, you would outrank them. Can you tell us a, a time when someone in one of those positions taught you something about leadership? 
Oh, that is a wonderful question. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because I'm always just trying to learn and I evaluate myself as a leader. Look, I'm, I'm not every day. I don't, I'm not, I don't do a great job every month, every week. I'm always looking to get better. And it, it's, you know, it's interesting. We're having this call at this moment in time because this is the last day in our corporate office. We, we just built a brand new campus and we're moving to a, a you know, a, a building that is double in size. It's got, you know, tons of employees stuff. It's got a mile worth of trails and fitness areas and collaborative spaces. And it's a beautiful new building, but it's kind of an interesting, you know, this this uh, uh, rest stop in life where I can stop and say, hey, we're moving buildings, but I've also got to change my leadership strategy because if you think about us being a startup back in 2002 and having, you know, when we moved into this building in 2007, we had 50 employees. Now we're moving out. We have, with all of our corporate units, nearly 500 employees. And so I'm, I, we have to change the way we lead this company. We have to change the way it's structured because you can't lead a company of 500 people like you did when it was 50. And so I'm kind of going through this phase myself of evaluating, all right, guess what? I need to change how I am as a leader. I need to get better because I can't be the same, you know, leader as a startup or a mid-sized company. We're getting pretty big here. And so I'm, I've been going through this like introspective period on how I can get better. And I'm realizing that our company today is going through like an awkward phase and we're not as good as we should be when it comes to like alignment strategically or culturally or communication. And uh, I can sense it. I can feel it. And so I'm, you know, right now spending some time on, all right, how do I change? How do we design the organization better? And so I, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. And I can only say that I think companies have a nonverbal communication just like an individual does. And, you know, you probably heard the, the quote, like 70% of our communication is nonverbal, how we look, how we carry ourselves, you know, interaction we have with people with eye contact and smiles. Companies have the same thing. And so I, I, I get to walk around our company almost every day. And over the last three, four, five, six weeks, I can sense this awkwardness and uh, this uncertainty. And so, you know, and I can sense it when I just talk with any employee on uh, their energy. is just a bit different, not bad, but just uncertain. And so all that is telling me I, I've just got to get to a place where we can design this company to operate more efficiently as a bigger company than what we were in the past. And so, um, you know, I, 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 any leader, you know, we all can sense things, right, when, we, when we're talking with someone. And, and uh, you can, a leader can do the same thing with their company. They can sense the energy level. And I know that ours is just in an awkward place today, and we will get it to a better place here soon. I'm just going to take a, a pause, my friend. Do you, do you have a couple of minutes? I know we're coming towards the end, but I also want yeah, to respect your yeah. time. Okay. Yeah. Let's give no it a problem. pause. We'll get right back to it. You know, I, I was reading an, an – it's interesting you say that because I was reading a, a interview I think you gave, and you said we give ourselves three or four days a year to talk about success and recognize success. And then the rest of the time, you know, if someone looked at our company, they think it was a terrible company because we're always talking about <laughs> threats and we're always talking about improvements and, and things that aren't going right. And I liked reading that because, you know, a lot of people like, oh, you got to always look at the positive, always look at the positive. But I've and I'm a very positive guy. I know you're a really positive guy, but I've always been wary when people are like, always look on the, the positive side, because I'm thinking sometimes not only do you miss threats, but you miss opportunities that are generated by inefficiencies that are generated by things that are going wrong. Like if I only looked at the positive, I would never recognize there was ways of being better. How do you ch challenge that? Like, how do you, how do you find that balance between making sure you recognize success? But it was so odd to see a CEO, especially of a company that's grown so fast say, you know, we only talk about success four or five days a year. Is that really true? Or, and how do you find that balance between 
wanting to always be looking to be better, but making sure you recognize how far you've come. Yeah, so look, I mean, we're always trying to give feedback, both positive and constructive. And so, look, any given day in the hallway, I'm giving people a high five. Or, you know, just yesterday I went into a team's area and said, look, you guys did a great job in that project. So, you know, you're, you're giving regular feedback throughout the year. But when I say talk about, you know, when we get together as a staff and all of us, you know, where we like shut up the rest of the world and just talk about us and our success, we do that, yeah, three or four times a year. We can say, guys, look what we've accomplished. And it's not just like the rankings of, you know, being number one in franchise. We talk about the individual's lives we've impacted, like a member in Omaha or a franchise owner in Florida. And so we talk about how those, how we play a role in impacting these people's lives that we may never meet, right? They may be in the other side of the world, but we do important work here. So we want, we want to make sure everyone understands their significance and how our work impacts people around the world. And so we take time to do that. But then when we get into a meeting, if you were sitting with us, Drew, you would think, gosh, these guys are terrible. And they got a million things to, to, to talk about. And it's true. I mean, we have, sure, we've got a lot of things going right. But look, every single day we wake up to problems, There's things that need to be solved, things that need to be fixed, things that need to be executed on better. And so, you know, that we probably spend more of our time on how we can improve something versus saying, hey, this is going right. I guess it's just how we're, even though I'm a hardwired optimist, we still are looking at problems every single day. And, uh, and so leaders need to take time to celebrate the victories and celebrate the success. But, but I think most companies, I mean, if you're worth your salt, you spend most of your time thinking, all right, how do we get better, right? We, we, I, I like to use the word, the term ABLEC, A-B-L-E-C, which is always be learning and eradicate complacency always be learning, eradicate complacency. So I want our organization to be a learning organization, and I never, ever want to be satisfied. We, we should, you know, complacency will kind of creep in the shadows of the organization, and suddenly everyone gets too comfortable. I don't want that. I don't want us to lose the next opportunity. I don't want us to get beat by the competition. I don't, you know, we owe it to our franchisees to just get better every single day. And uh, so complacency is a terrible word around here, and I've got to lead that by example. You know, that's, that's amazing because I love being positive. I really do. But blind positivity, because you talked about the importance of self-reflection. Like, I don't know about you, but when I really engage in meaningful self-reflection, it generally isn't like all that much positive. I mean, it's not all that productive if you shouldn't be down on yourself. But I think that self-reflection is, in essence, an attempt to identify ways to get better, is it not? I think so. I really do. I mean, I think you have to be aware of, hey, here's the the things I like about myself. You know, you, you want to have a good self-worth and healthy self, self-respect. So you want to be, be cognizant of that. But yes, you've got to be aware of the weaknesses. And there are some things you can maybe fix and some things that you just have to, to it's a blind spot and you've got to work around. So yeah, look, I think it's important to to have moments of self-reflection. I, I really do. When you said, you know, that someone, uh, let's talk about the day one theme a little bit here. I haven't asked a, a CEO this question before, but I asked you, you know, what question would you ask your 14-year-old self to be able to answer by the end of every day? What question, if, if you could make a single question part of the Anytime Fitness employee manual, that by the end of every single day, I need you, if you work here, to have been able to answer this question, what question would that be? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I could, could very similarly, what did you learn or how, who do you impact? It might be how you made the company better today. And when I mean the company is like the network, not about revenue, but how did you make someone operate better? Like, and it could be a franchise in Omaha, as I mentioned before. So, so what was your impact today? Right. What was your, that would probably be it. What was your impact? Cause that could be an open-ended question because impact can happen in a variety of ways. And so I want our people to know that every single person here, 
puts points on the scoreboard, right? You impact. I mean, everyone here is collaborative, and your work shows up in different cities across the world. And so, uh, you know, part of my job as a leader is we continue to get big is to make sure every single person understands their significance. Because if they know their significance, they're going to be more engaged, and they're going to take on more responsibility, and they're going to want to come to work and do important stuff. If I find that lack of employee engagement uh, it trails back to lack of significance, right? The fact that they just, they're lost. They don't understand what their, what their role is, or they don't understand how it makes a difference. And if, if, you know, so I've got to make sure that they know who they are, what they are, why they're doing it and how it impacts, um, you know, all of our stakeholders. And so I, I'm always trying to make sure that we all understand our significance in this organization. And I also hope I can help them understand their potential significance in life. What are you going to do today? to make somebody in your company realize they're significant on a very practical level in case someone in case we got a, a manager or a boss out there listening like what are you going to do today to make somebody in your company recognize not only are they significant but how they could be so I, I do things some of the things I do very, very often here is I send all staff emails that tell stories uh to help them recognize right, our impact or personal and professional growth. So I do those quite often, but I do try, I walk the, the, the company here at least twice a day and I will, you know, have a casual, what seems like serendipitous type of conversations in the hallway. I'll bump into someone and I'll just kind of say, hey, how are you doing first and foremost, right? What's going on in your life or how's work going? How have you made an impact? And Hey, or I, you know, sometimes I, there's always a time to recognize someone. You always want to be able to give someone some recognition. Like, by the way, Hey, you're doing a great job in this area. Or, Hey, I know your department, uh, you know, speaks highly of you keep it up. Or, you know, I, sometimes it's just thankful. Like I'll say, Hey, I know you've been here for a couple of years. I just want to thank you for your hard work and, and your dedication to make any time fitness better. So it can be small, right? It can literally be a couple sentences of recognition or a couple sentences of appreciation, but I know that goes a long way. And so um, I try to, to do that stuff daily. And are you comfortable calling yourself a leader? I am. Yeah, I really am. Look, I have to. Um, uh, I think it's, I, I like that word. I like the responsibility that comes with it. I kind of like the stress that comes with it. Um, you know, I, I think it is a very, I guess, confident to call yourself a leader, but at the end of the day, I am. I mean, you know, it's part of the reason we got here. Uh, I'll take responsibility for any of the issues and problems that go wrong with Anytime Fitness, but I'll also take some responsibility for things that have gone right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I like the term leader. I really do, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's easy. And I'm, I'm proud of the lives we've impacted. I'm, I'm proud of our, our business success, and I, I like being in a leadership uh, position. I really do. Well, let's close with this. I mean, you, you wrote a book called Working Out Sucks, but at its core yeah. was a desire to help people be better. You run a company that, if you look back at the history of it, really started with this desire to do something better because if you did it better, you'd have an opportunity to influence others more frequently and in a more profound way. So for the people who are listening and imagine that they want today to be day one in their transformation as a, as a person, whether it's fitness, whether it's leadership, what message would you give them for those who have said, look, I've tried this, particularly on the fitness level, look, I've tried this before, it didn't work, or I can't do it. What would you leave them with as here's my day one advice on how to start making things a little bit different for you? Well, I'm always a big believer in mindset, you know, how you... 
um, to tackle a problem or an opportunity or how you adapt is kind of your mindset. And, you know, I think one of the mindsets that's made me successful is this, is, you know, an issue or problem is going to present itself. And, and it could be outside of your control or inside of your control, but look, it just seems to be um, a habit for people to like to complain and whine and bitch about something. And I promise you, I'm not a person that complains about much because I see things in three ways. Number one, there's something going wrong in the world, but I can't control it. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's oil prices. Guess what? I don't worry about it because I can't control it. Or there's something in the world going on that I, I don't like. It's, it's impacting me, but I'm unwilling to do anything about it. Therefore, I'm not going to bitch about it. I'm not going to complain about it because I'm unwilling to put efforts to, to fix it. Or there's something in my life that is going wrong or my business, whatever it is, but I'm willing to do something about it. And therefore, what action am I willing to take? How am I going to fix that? How am I going to impact it? How am I going to make that a little bit better? And so, again, that, that's what allows me to deal with stress. And that's what allows me to deal with the right mindset because either you can't control it, so don't worry about it, or you're unwilling to do something, so quit bitching about it. Or if, if it affects you and you're willing to do something about it, then what will solve your angst is the fact that you're willing to go to battle on it. You're willing to fix it. You're willing to do your part. And that could be something doing in your community. It could be about, you know, it's, uh, maybe something to do with charity, maybe something to do with your business business. But to me, that gives me a very healthy mindset because I don't, I don't stress out about shit I don't control. I don't stress out about stuff I'm unwilling to do stuff about. I, what I stress about is stuff I'm willing to impact on, but the stress goes away when I put action behind my, my things I'm worried and therefore I, I attempt to fix it. I, and I hope that kind of makes sense. But to me, that gives me the right mindset to tackle issues in my life and not bring on unnecessary stress that's going to pollute um, my efforts. I like that. Don't stress about things that you can't change. Stress about the stuff you can change, but don't seem to be willing to. And hopefully well, that stress pushes you to change it. Yeah, here's, here's the second one I always get to people. I'm like, you can't complain about things that you're unwilling to put effort towards. Right? My, I try to tell my kids this. I'm like, look, son, I know you complain about that, but you have two options. You can either do something about it or try to, or, or, but if you're not willing to put anything towards it, then you, why are you complaining about it? Right? And so it, it bothers me when... You know, I tell franchisees all the time who might complain about the economy. I'm like, look, you can't control the national economy, right? You can only control the economy within your club. And so, therefore, what are you going to do about it? But if, but if you're just going to bitch for bitching's sake, but you're not willing to put efforts towards it, then why are you bitching, right? I love it. I, I think it's amazing. It's a, a big part is that uh, of the work I think we're both trying to do is, is I, there's, it's an identification of one step to be taken in the direction of what you want to do. And I, I, I say, you know, let's identify the, the values you want to stand for and make sure you live them. And, and I love what you're saying is identify the things that are within your power to change and then take action on it and be honest with yourself when it's not something that you can't change. It's something you're not willing to put the work in for, if I've got that right. Yes, that's great. So whether or not you can change it isn't necessarily the issue. It's, are you willing to put the effort towards it? Because even if you put effort towards something, something and I've done this, and it, it, it doesn't come out with the change you wanted, that's okay. You still feel better about yourself because you put action towards it. You have, you have like more respect for it. And you said, you know what? At least I was part of the solution. Now, maybe we didn't fix the problem, but I was part of it, or at least I attempted to be part of it. And I, I, to me, you're not going to win every single thing you try to do, but um, you're going to feel a heck of a lot better about yourself for putting action towards it. You're going to get a, a big return on your emotional investment, whether it works hey. out or not. <laughs> that is a great wrap up, man. That is perfect. Yes, exactly right. Uh, amazing. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time, for talking to us on Day One Leadership. Uh, Chuck, it's, it's been an, a real honor chatting with you today, working with you before, and I, I hope we get to cross paths again. Thanks so much for taking time and, and sharing with our listeners. 
Drew, thank you again. It was an honor to have you speak at our annual conference, and uh, we will connect again here in the future. That was Anytime Fitness CEO Chuck Runyon. My sincere thanks to him for joining us this week, for giving so much of his time and insight to the Day One podcast. Next week, we're staying in the entrepreneurial space, but moving from someone who has already built a billion-dollar company to someone at the beginning of that voyage. We're speaking to Alana Ben-Ari. She's the founder, CEO, and lead designer at 21 Toys, a socially motivated toy company that Time Magazine has said is shaping the classrooms of the future. She's won the CEO Radical Generosity Fund and honestly may be the only guest I've ever had who speaks as quickly as I do. Here's a quick insight from next week's episode. I, I don't think it affects my values. I don't think it affects my time. So a lot of the time people say like, oh, you're starting a business. You really need to turn on like time management. I was like, no, it's guilt management. <laughs> it's all for me. It's all guilt management. The idea of guilt management as a fundamental part of leadership. That's just one of the many fascinating ideas I get to dive into with Alana Ben-Ari next week. Make sure you come back and check it out. That's the Day One Leadership Podcast for this week. I'm Drew Dudley. Today is day one. Every day is day one. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.